0: Welcome into the local angle on FanDuel TV. And once again, myself, Brian Barrett from Off the Pike and my buddy John Justremski from New York, New York. We are collaborating as the Red Sox and the Yankees are getting ready for another series. But JJ, we decided to do something a little bit different this week because the Red Sox are not playing great. Not saying the Yankees are a bad team, but they're not exactly a juggernaut. So let's go back in history to when these teams were both really good. How about that?
1: Well, I love the sound of that. And by the way, I was hoping for a little love from Mr. Brian Barrett after I correctly predicted, might I add, that oh, the yeah. Yankees would go and lose <laughs> two out of three to the Boston Red Sox, even though I had to sit there and watch the Yankees get stymied by Garrett Whitlock on Friday. And then on Sunday, Aaron Boone put on a managerial clinic. What else is new? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it, it is nice, Brian, that we can take a little hiatus from the mediocre New York Yankees, and I guess the less than mediocre Boston Red Sox, and we can think back on the peak excellence that these two baseball teams provided, the drama, the moments, all of that great stuff encompassed over the last, I don't know, 20 to 30 years of our lifetime, where you can make the argument, we weren't there for Carlton Fisk and Thurman Munson and We definitely weren't there for Joe DiMaggio (laughs) and Teddy Ballgame. I wish we were. I mean, those would be great times. But, I mean, from like 1995 on, which is when I've been a fan, I think you, what are you, a year or two younger than me? So, you're like 96, 97. you got a great memory. You're a Syracuse guy. We we remember things like it was yesterday. Yeah, we don't remember what we had for lunch (laughs) yesterday, but we remember why, you know, Mark Bellhorn hit a three-run homer in game six of the ALCS. So, Yeah, man, I think we're the perfect guys to do this. Not to toot our own horn, but just saying, I think we are.
0: All right, so what we're going to do here, we're going to do our top five Red Sox players from the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry, and, of course, the top five Yankees, and then we'll do our top five moments for each team as well. So the way that I looked at this, JJ, is against the Yankees, right? Not theoretically, like, the best players from that era, but the best guys against the Yankees. So I'll start off with my fifth, and then we'll get to your fifth. So number five on my list is an under-the-radar guy, and that's Nathan Avaldi. Okay, Nathan Avaldi. He pitched in that critical game three where the Red Sox won 16 20 Yankee Stadium, seven innings, one earned run. And then the wild card game, 2021. It wasn't Chris Sale that got the start. It was Nathan Avaldi that got the start. He was outstanding in that game. Just the one run, of course, that was a solo shot to Anthony Rizzo. Nate Avaldi was an underrated big game pitcher for the Red Sox in general, but he was really good against the Yankees on two different occasions in the postseason. So under the radar, number five for me is Nathan Avaldi, former Yankee and now I former Red Sox. I love the
1: choice. I love the choice because, number one, I was thrilled the Yankees got to see Nathan Avaldi find his way to Texas, right? Like, I didn't have to deal with Nathan Avaldi <laughs> in the division any longer. And you're right about the fact that 2018, he's a former Yankee. He comes in and was instrumental in shutting the Yankees down in big games in August that year pitched great against him in the postseason in what was a pivotal Game 3 swing game. And there was always this what if because Ovaldi got hurt with the Yankees and didn't live up to the billing and obviously performed brilliantly with the Boston Red Sox. So I like that choice. I like that direction. And I'm going in a similar way, Brian, with a former Yankee and a lifelong Yankee who is not exactly going to go down as like a Monument Park Yankee. He's not going to be a future Hall of Famer but this is a guy who had a knack for killing the Boston Red Sox and was the ultimate pest against the Boston Red Sox. And that's Brett Gardner. Brett Gardner mm. always seemed to be one of those guys that would come up with big hits against the Red Sox. I think back on a game they played 2019, right after the Red Sox won the division series, Yankees kind of set an early tone of that season. Gordy hitting a grand slam, which is not really his forte because he wasn't a power hitter. But a guy who grinded out at bats, a guy who was just a pain in the neck, all the Red Sox fans in my life, they couldn't stand him. So that's usually like a telltale sign that this guy is getting under your skin a little bit. So I'm going down that road as well here for choice five. And Brett Gardner is my choice.
0: Yeah, he was the pest word is the best way to describe him because it wasn't even about him getting hits all the time. It was just he'd foul everything off and it'd be like 12 pitch at bats. And then all of a sudden you starting pitcher. He threw 12 extra pitches because Brett Gardner wasn't even trying to put the ball in play. He was just trying to foul everything off. So that guy was incredibly annoying from a Red Sox perspective. All right. Number four on my list, Yankee killer. Pablo Sandoval. I'm kidding. No, no, not Pablo Sandoval. You
1: it for a second. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what did I miss yeah.
0: here? No, his belt came off. I've never seen that happen before. His belt broke when he took a swing. Terrible deal. But anyway, J.D. Martinez. Sneaky one here because in the 2018 series, the playoff series they had, he was really good. Six RBIs, and he hit safely in every game. And they needed it because Mookie in that series was just three for 16. He wasn't good. J.D. had a big three-run shot off J.A. Happ to give the Sox a lead in game one. He also drove in a pair of runs in that 16-1 to game and another RBI in the clincher. So J.D. Martinez was really the most consistent offensive player for the Red Sox in that 2018 ALDS, and he completely changed their lineup that season. He was so good for the Red Sox that season. He was one of the best four to five players in the sport that season. So J.D. Martinez, number four on my list.
1: I like that choice. It's interesting with J.D. Martinez because I think about 2018, and it just felt like he destroyed the New York Yankees. And then it got to a point where later on in his career, Brian, it felt like, okay, he's fading. He's not that guy. But then he would come up with big hits against the New York Yankees. All right, number four. And I'm curious how you feel about this guy, but I'm putting him on the list because he had a couple of big moments against Boston. He had a walk-off home run against Rod Beck in the 1999 American League Championship Series. And to me, he's one of the most undervalued and underappreciated Yankees of the last 30 to 35 years because that whole Steiner Sports core four thing came into place in 2009, great for Jeter and Pettit and Posada and uh, Mariano Rivera. I love that I'm blanking on Mariano Rivera, for goodness sakes. But Bernie Williams is number four for me. This is a guy who hit monster home runs against the Boston Red Sox. For his career, he had 27 homers, 110 RBIs against the Bo Sox. He had a walk-off homer in an American League Championship game, starting off 99. To me, Bernie is one of those guys, clutch. You wanted him up there in a big spot, and you wanted him up there against the Boston Red Sox. Did you look at Bernie... As a Red Sox killer, or are there guys that are higher on your list as far as that goes. Curious how you feel. There's about one Bernie. guy
0: in particular that I have higher on the list. So if you don't put him in this, I'll get to it. I don't want to spoil that, just in case. But yeah, he was. He always. I think had I a know who at, it is. By the way, okay. I think I know All who right. it is. Full of the scroll <laughs> All here. right, because there's one guy that I couldn't stand, and not that I disliked him as a person, I just disliked him as a member of the Yankees organization. So I'm thinking that you're going to name that guy as well. But yeah. Bernie always gave you a good at bat too, a professional at bat. So he was definitely something, somebody that the Red Sox fans feared. All right, I got a number three. I have to go Shilling just because Game Six, the bloody sock. We'll get into that when we get into moments as well. But he goes six innings, one hit with a serious injury, and the other component to Shilling was this: Pedro historically, the Yankees are my daddy. He wasn't good against the Yankees, right? In so many big playoff spots that that game six, it changed the trajectory of the series. It was already 3-2. The Red Sox had won two, but Schilling goes out there in game six. He wins that game. You're like, okay, this series is over. There's no chance that the Red Sox are losing game seven after what Schilling just did. And he sort of brought a toughness to the pitching staff that they didn't have previously with just Pedro and Derek Lowe. So I'd put Schilling number three if it's only for that one game.
1: It's fair, and I understand why. My only counter with Schilling, listen, Schilling was a Yankee killer not only for 2004 with the Red Sox, but, of course, 2001, yeah. when, to me, he was even better with the Arizona Diamondbacks in pitching game one and shutting them down, leaving in game four with a lead before the Tito Martinez miracle, and then, of course, pitching game seven, leaving game seven with a 2-1 to deficit, which I don't want to get into because it's one of the worst losses of my Yankee lifetime, that Game 7 of the 2001 <laughs> World Series. But yeah, listen, Schilling, major onions and major stones for that bloody sock game. But after 2004, it felt like the Yankees solved the Shilling riddle, and maybe it's because his body broke down and he just wasn't yeah. the same pitcher. But I felt like after that 2004 bloody sock game, Yankees had a lot of moments against Schilling, but I get it. Listen, I'm putting him in there for one
0: game, JJ. Like I acknowledge I'm putting him in there for one game. It was one big game, though. I have to put him in there. That's why. Totally,
1: totally fair. All right. Number three on my list. I have a feeling is going to be number one on your list, but that's Hideki Matsui. And that's the guy, by the way, that (laughs) I knew you were referencing (laughs) because Matsui wore out the Red Sox. He had monster career numbers against Pedro Martinez. I think back to Game 7 in 2003 when why on earth did Grady Little decide to let Pedro Martinez continue to pitch
2: oh, and no, let him no, to go no.
1: against Hideki Matsui when he roped that double down the right field line. But it always seemed like Matsui had this flair for killing the Boston Red Sox and hitting BBs all over the place at either Yankee Stadium or at Fenway Park. So I have one to reserve for two very special people but I am putting Hideki Matsui, who had a very terrific Yankee career and capped it off with a World Series MVP in 2009, number three
0: on the list, Mister Barrett. Yeah, that's fair. I'm, I'm going to have nightmares tonight now thinking of him again after we do this. Well, that's show.
1: fine. You brought you you brought up uh, Nathan Avaldi, so yeah. I get to bring up Hideki Matsui. What's fair is fair.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So number two on my list, I'm going with Manny Ramirez. So even though in that 04 series, like it wasn't the hits. He was the guy the Yankees were scared of. Now, he reached base 40% of his at-bats because the Yankees kept walking him, right? Because at that time, Ortiz wasn't really Ortiz until that series. And Manny Ramirez is sort of the landmine in the lineup. The Yankees were essentially saying anybody but Manny. And he ended up still, it's other guys had big series, like obviously Ortiz, but even like Orlando Cabrera drove in seven runs in that series out of nowhere. Veritek had a really good series. But just the presence of Manny... In the lineup, it's almost like when you have a great shooter in the NBA, like Klay Thompson's in the corner. Even if he doesn't score, he's affecting everything. That's what Manny was in the middle of that lineup as arguably one of the handful of greatest right-handed hitters of all time. I mean, there's some baggage there with Manny and PEDs, but he was great against the Yankees and his presence in that lineup. I truly believe changed that series and it's something we don't talk about because obviously the hero is Ortiz and the bloody sock game and all that.
1: Listen, Manny Ramirez killed the Yankees his entire career. He killed them with the Cleveland Indians. He killed them with the Boston Red Sox. He was never a guy you wanted to see up with the game on the line. He always gave me the heebie-jeebies. Uh, steroids and no steroids. He's one of the most phenomenal hitters I've ever seen in my lifetime. So I'm going to have no problem with that, Brian Barrett. And by the way, I'm just thinking about this now. I want an honorable mention. I'm going to give you one that should have maybe been on your list and maybe you could give me one that should have been on my list because there's one that I'm surprised you have not mentioned and I do want to get it off my chest, but I'm going to wait for you to finish up the list. Uh, Number two, and I understand he yucked up game four, not game five. Anybody who says Mariano Rivera yucked up game five is a dope. I mean, it was the tying run on second base Joe Joe Torre's <laughs> bringing him in with a runner on third with one out. Oh, it's it's Mariano's blown saving game 5. Please. That that narrative is so overblown. But Mariano Rivera before game 4 of 2004 did nothing but get big saves against the Boston Red Sox in the regular season. How about in the 2003 ALCS, where he's the MVP, and he threw not one, not two, but three scoreless innings in a game seven against the Boston Red Sox. And he says to this day, and he said it on my New York, New York podcast, that if he needed to go four innings in that particular game, he would have gone four innings in that particular game. So I know you're going to look at Mariano's ERA for his career, and it's a little higher against Boston. But let's also acknowledge the Red Sox were the premier team with the Yankees at
0: that right. point in time yeah. for
1: a good chunk. So yeah, Pedro's gonna have higher ERA against the Yankees. Uh Rivera's gonna have a higher ERA against the Red Sox because they're seeing them all the time. There's like a little bit more of a comfort level as far as that goes. But to say Mariano didn't have big moments against the Boston Red Sox is just totally off base. It's totally nonsensical. And for what it's worth, fifty-eight career saves against the Boston Red Sox. So Number two on my list, the greatest reliever of all time, Mariano Rivera.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the most rewarding things about 0-4 is they finally got to Mariano Rivera, which they historically have never done or had never done up until that particular point in time. All right, JJ, this is what we're going to do. We each have our number one guy left, so let's come back. We'll each give our number one guy in the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry, and then we'll get to our top five moments as well. You're listening to The Local Angle right here, or watching The Local Angle right here on FanDuel TV.
1: Welcome back to The Local Angle right here on FanDuel TV. Brian Barrett and John Justremski. We're having too much fun reliving yesteryear with the Red Sox and the Yankees. So, Brian, this one, I don't think it's going to surprise you much. And I know if you look at his career numbers, you may say, oh, they may be not as good as what he has for his career. But nobody owned the big moment. And nobody owned the big moment more against the Boston Red Sox than Derek Jeter. I mean, Derek Jeter was in the middle of everything. And I know maybe you don't fear him because he doesn't hit home runs. He takes his game and brings it to the next level. He had 26 homers, 138 career RBIs against the Boston Red Sox, tons of big postseason home runs, tons of big postseason moments. Beat him in 99, beat him in 2003. Yes, lost to him in 2004. I don't want to ignore that. But I got to put the captain number one. Barrett, in the middle of everything in those Yankee Red Sox games, dude.
0: Yeah, I would have been surprised if you had anybody but Jeter, number one. Although I will say this, one of the most overrated defensive shortstops in the history of the game. The numbers were backed up. I can understand
1: that. And a lot of bloopers, a lot of extra bloopers because he didn't have the range. Hey, those 3,000 bloopers, his hits ended up working out a okay, So not (laughs) too shabby a career. Well, that's what you got to do here.
0: Yeah, I'm just messing with you, man. So I go, obviously, it's Ortiz, number one. How could it not be? 12 for 31 in that series. eleven ninety-nine OPS 04. That's the series I'm talking about. The three bombs, he had the walk-off in Game 4, and then in Game 5 the very next night, remember, he ends up with the little bleeder that wins it, and that's when Tim McCarver's saying, did he do it again? He did do it again. And then, of course, he hits a home run later on off Esteban Loaiza as well. He hit a home run to open up the Game 7 victory for the Red Sox as well off of Kevin Brown, so he was just unbelievable. I mean, two walk-offs in the same series, JJ. How could it not be David Ortiz? And a
1: guy like Derek Cheater, who always found a way to rise to the occasion, might have had some help from some substances. Okay. Hey, never listen, proven. are on my guy Jeter's Never defense. proven. I'm gonna get on Big Poppy, And, uh, hey, it was uh, the George Mitchell report. We're not going to put Big Poppy in there. See, now we're getting, getting testy, Brian. I like never it. Never proven. I like it. Hey, listen, he is a Hall of Famer, and there's no doubt he's the number one Yankee killer of my lifetime. Uh, one guy I'm surprised who is not on your list, Trot oh. Nixon. Because I hated uh, that guy. That's a good guy. one. He killed the Yankees. Kill Roger Clements. I hated that guy.
0: I love Trott Nixon, too. He was a dirt dog. Like, the helmet was always filthy. You couldn't even see the bee on the helmet. He was a well, beast, too. that's the too. thing.
1: He would have, if he was a Yankee, I would have respected the hell out of him. You know what I mean, Brian? Like, that's why Trott Nixon yeah. was one of those guys. He would kill my team and make me sick. All right. What we're going to do now for part two, the top five moments between the Yankees and the Red Sox. And what we're going to do to speed this up a little bit, Brian, I'll let you go first. I'll let you count down five, four, and three. Then I'll respond, go five, four, and three, and then we'll have a little fun with two and, of course, number one.
0: Okay, number five on my list is actually fairly recent, October 5th of 2021. If you remember what that was, it was the wild card game between the Red Sox and the Yankees. This is post-COVID. Everybody's finally out of the house. It's insane. It's insane. Jerry Remy comes out to throw the first pitch. As he was battling cancer, Dennis Eckersley is catching the ball from him. And remember, just later on that month, Jerry Remy passed away. But you could see that was almost, and Eckersley said after the game, that was Jerry saying goodbye after Jerry Remy had passed away. But he throws out the first pitch, and the place was absolutely electric. And then when he comes out, there's sort of waterworks. But you knew when he threw that first pitch from a Red Sox perspective, they were going to win that game. And then what? The first inning, Xander Bogarts takes Garrett Coldy, But that moment of having Jerry Remy out on the field was just unbelievable. All right. Then an underrated moment. The Red Sox win game one of the 2018 ALDS against the Yankees. Game two, Aaron Judge goes by the Red Sox clubhouse, playing New York, New York. And what happens after that? The Red Sox win the next game 16-1. to So, and Alex Cora referenced it at the parade, that they scored 16 runs at Yankee Stadium. So that was sort of a moment where Aaron Judge got under the skin of the Red Sox. And then number three, I almost had to do, like I was thinking of the Brawls. So I was thinking about the Pedro one as an honorable mention where he throws Don Zimmer down to the ground. But you have to go with Jason Veritek, Alex Rodriguez, Arroyo ends up Plunk, Brunson Royal Plunks A-Rod. And then of course you have the situation where A-Rod gets in it to it with him. Jason Veritek tells him to go to first. He had some choice words. They go at it. It's considered to be a turning point of the season. It was 10-8 and the ninth inning the Red Sox end up winning that game. But that was just an epic brawl that those two teams had. And that was the disdain that they had for each other at that time.
1: That is a terrific list. A lot of bad memories for me. I was at that wildcard game in 2021. Uh, Oh, you were? Oh, I sure was. I had excellent seats. Uh, It was not a pleasant day. It was not a pleasant day. And then I was yelling and screaming to get Aaron Boone fired right after the game. I didn't get my wish. But uh, that is a vivid, vivid memory for me. And I was in an Atlantic City sports book and stayed for all nine innings of that 17-1 debacle. uh, And then went (laughs) to game four, drove back, was hungover as hungover can be. And then proceeded to watch the Yankees <laughs> get eliminated when Eduardo Nunez getting the last out. All right, so I got to go 3, 4, and 5 relatively quickly here. So I- I'm going to go with the Game 3 2003 ALCS. I don't want to make this too much 2004, too much 2003. So I have two moments from the 2003 ALCS. That Game 3 was epic. I mean, it was Clemens, Pedro. You mentioned Kareem Garcia, Pedro Martinez, Dom Zimmer charging at Pedro Martinez, throwing him to the ground. <laughs> then you got my guy Jeff Nelson and Kareem Garcia going at it with that punk groundskeeper. Like, it was insanity. It was, like, one of the most <laughs> insane games you could ever have, and it ended up being a terrific, really well-played baseball game. So I'm putting that number five on the list because I don't want to be too much a prisoner of the moment of 2003. Number four, and I was in the building for this, 2021 was a regular season game. John Carlos Stanton hit the furthest ball I have ever seen hit in my life, being right down on the third baseline, the jaws that were dropped at Fenway Park on that particular Saturday late afternoon, it was one of those holy blank, I cannot believe he hit that ball as far as he did, and it kind of propelled the Yankees into getting into that wildcard game before they go, of course, and lose to the Boston Red Sox, but being there, and I think I'm a little biased in saying it, Brian, It found its way onto my list. Now, number three, it's not one individual game. It is a weekend. In 2006, the Yankees played five games in four days at Fenway Park. Swept the Boston Red Sox. Five games in four days. Didn't mean much. Yankees lost in the first round of the playoffs. But it basically put the 2006 Red Sox to bed and won the division for the Yankees. So, I'm giving you five instead of one there. So, that's five, four, and three.
0: Yeah, and Giancarlo Stanton, sneaky Red Sox killer. That guy always seems he to perform He was my up. honorable mention,
1: by the way. I had him on the yeah. list. I worked Bernie in there instead, but Stanton he, easily could be there.
0: Yeah, he was bad in 18, but recently he's been really good against the Red Sox. All right, so I'll give you my number two here. That's the steal. Dave Roberts down three games to none. Millar walks. In comes Roberts. He nearly gets picked by Mariano, by the way, if you go back. He was almost picked. He steals second. And then after that, Bill Miller ties the game up with a single. And we all know what happens after that. David Ortiz with the walk off. So that was to get yourself back in the series. But that moment where everybody knew he was going to steal. And at the time, it's 3-1 after the game, right? The series, you think, okay, maybe this won't be remembered. But now history remembers it because it was an epic moment. And it was just it was an incredible thing to see. Everybody knew he was going and he still stole second. It was incredible.
1: And changed the entire feel and complexion of that game and that series. And, of course, the rest, as we know, unfortunately, is history.
0: Number two for me,
1: another regular season game. And you could argue this maybe is one of, if not the greatest regular season game played between the Yankees and the Red Sox. This was a July 2004 game. It's back and forth, haymaker after haymaker. And there's a reason why I put Derek Jeter number one on the list. Going face first into the stands saving the game for the Yankees, comes out looking like a prize fighter who, you know, maybe stumbled upon the wrong bar in town and got into a brawl, you know, with the black guy and the blood gushing all over the place. Kind of symbolized Jeter being all in, doing whatever it takes to go and win for his particular team. And that game was bonkers. My guy, John Flaherty, with the walk-off hit against Curtis Laskanek. So I'm going with that, Mr. Barrett, as number two. Jeter diving in his stance.
0: Fair enough. That's a good one. My number one, the bloody sock game. How could it not be? Kurt Schilling gets a procedure done on the trainer's table because the first game he pitched against the Yankees, he was bad because he's dealing with this ankle issue. Then he goes out there and he gives you a solid out and gives up just one run. And after that, the series was over. We knew they were winning after they win game six. Schilling's out there on a bloody sock having a procedure done before the game he knew was over. So that's number one, unequivocally the best moment.
1: Really, I thought you were gonna go with the steal one of the Ortiz walk offs. Interesting.
3: Well, I kind of
0: combined the steal and the walk off Ortiz, and I put Ortiz okay. number one on my list. So I kind of already had the Ortiz Dave Roberts thing in there. So I the bloody sock thing was just epic. I was in the building for that one as well. I'm dropping a lot of those. I feel
1: like Francesca. Did was you? There. Have, I was there.
0: Have you I missed the Red Sox Yankees game? How many did you have? You been to all of them, man? Jeez,
1: I've been to a lot of good ones. Uh, not to toot my own horn a little bit, but I have. I wasn't at Game 4 and 5 in Fenway. Thank heavens for that. And thankfully, I was not at Game 7. I decided to skip. We went to Game 6 instead, and I knew the series was over. Number one for me, and it kind of is a weird moment now because of what happened in 2004 and because he has not been my favorite Yankee manager but it has uh, to be Aaron Boone. I don't want to 2000- listen to this. You know what, though? See, I don't want to listen to this. You guys should be over this now. You guys won. <laughs> you guys have won enough. Who cares? Like, it, 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 I wish I could equate it to something with you know the long-suffering teams I root for, but like, it's like 95 for the Yankees with Edgar Martinez. Like, It was a heartbreaker, but then they won four out of five championships. I was good. Everything was okay in Yankee land, but that game, 5-2 down in the eighth inning. Grady Little not taking out Pedro, Posada, Matsui, Mariano, Messina coming out of the bullpen and saving the Yankees' derriere. But I will say, Boone, off Wakefield, just as they get back from commercial, got to be number one on the list.
0: Yeah, and you know what? Good thing that you mentioned this. The Red Sox got Tito out of it, right? Because Grady Little, you win that series, he's not getting fired. So the Red Sox got an elite manager out of that. So I'm happy that Aaron Boone hit that home run now, J.J.,
1: I, I can understand why. Uh, and for more reasons than to one, too, because he's still the manager of my team. So there's that. <laughs> yep. Aaron Boone will be the manager of my team probably for the rest of my life. All right, Brian, this is a ton of fun. This is a lot more fun than breaking down this weekend's Yankee Red Sox games. But we'll do no that doubt. on Off the Pike. And we'll do that on New York. New York coming up on Sunday. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be some inspiring baseball played at Fenway Park. So get your popcorn ready.
3: Welcome to the Ringers Philly special. Shiel Kapadia here, joined by Ben Solak and ace producer, Cliff Augustine. Here's what we're doing today. We're doing a little Eagles look ahead. I know it's not training camp yet, but it'll be here. Before we know it, Ben and I are going to answer one simple question. Who are the most intriguing players on this Eagles roster going into camp? Not for the season, not for the next three years, just for that stretch from late July until the first uh, week of the season, who do we have our eyes on? So we'll do that, and then I'll finish out uh, with a, with another segment with Raheem Palmer joining to talk a little Phillies and Sixers. Benjamin, I haven't seen your handsome face in so long. Uh, you got to lead us off here with who your most intriguing eagle is going into training camp.
4: Yeah. Don't you think it's like did... – Don't you wonder if Nick Sirianni (laughs) knew what he was doing to Eagles content creators when they got rid of mandatory minicamp? Like, this is we're doing training camp preview stuff in June. How dare they? All these other teams, the Bills got (laughs) Stephon Diggs drama to talk about. I'm seeing Patriots updates on Mac Jones accuracy. And here we are. Just nothing to talk about on the Eagles. We need mandatory minicamp back for the
3: content. All right? That's what it's there for. Yeah, they only had six practices, the Eagles. Two were open to the media. The one I went to was inside... Uh, wasn't a lot going on. It was about an hour. After a half an hour, a bunch of the veterans met with Sirianni, and they walked out. A bunch of the other veterans didn't even show up. Uh, eyeball for it. Let, you know, let these guys relax. They'll be fine. I'm They're for veterans. it from a
4: team building mm-hmm. perspective. I'm anti it for a uh, doing Content. Eagles podcast in, <laughs> in June uh, perspective. When yeah. we're talking most interesting Eagles for training camp, to me, like there's an unquestioned number one name. I'll be curious if you feel the same way, and that's Nakoby Dean, uh, second year linebacker out of Georgia. To me, that's the most interesting. Like, certainly the rookies are interesting, but the rookies are interesting every single year. Nakoby Dean's functionally a rookie, right? Barely had any starting snaps last season, but has huge responsibility on his shoulders. There is no veteran parachute, you know chill guy who maybe can start for you if Nakobe Dean is bad behind Nakobe Dean on the depth chart right now. If that guy exists, he's Nicholas Morrow, and he's already starting because the Eagles linebacker room is kind of that thin. Uh, behind Dean, it's Caden it's Ellison, and it's and it's Sean Bradley, it's Davian Taylor. There's no clear veteran. like They need Nakobe to be able to play. And there were positive reports out of Nekobi last year in, in training camp, but you brought up, and there's, I think, a lot of veracity to this point, that if Nakobe Dean really blew the Eagles out of the water, they would have found ways to get him on the field. I think that they kind of pigeonholed him into being TJ Edwards' backup and being the Mike linebacker and never really considered playing him over Kaiser White. I think that was to his detriment. But now, like, he's going to have the green dot. He's going to be calling in plays. He's going to be that presumed Mike linebacker in the first year of a new defensive coordinator on a defense that is largely set everywhere else. Like the Eagles have like tons of, of experienced veterans and had a hugely successful defense last year along the defensive line. And at corner, Like, N'Kobe's got to be the captain. He won't really be the captain because he's a young guy, but he's got to be the captain, the quarterback, the signal caller for this extremely good unit. He's got to do it very fast with the new D.C. A lot of challenges. Um, and the other thing that makes N'Kobe's training camp really important is he came into league undersized. Like everybody knew that he was a smaller linebacker and that was a concern for his eval. And so when he's out there playing with the ones and playing against the Eagles defense, or excuse me, playing against the Eagles offense and trying to tackle Jalen Hurts and Rashad Penny, he's got to be able to look the part. He has to be fast. He has to be physical. Like you need to be able to see from this guy that he can hang at the NFL level. And I think he can, but it's a box that's important to check when you talk about these undersized players. So Nicobe Dean to me, by far, the most interesting Eagles player coming into training
3: camp. Just finishing up on Dean, like, when You look at his game, his skill set. You studied him coming out of college. Like, did you watch him in college? And we're like, I'm watching an undersized player. Like, what does he need to do to overcome, yeah, uh, in 2023? <clears throat> what maybe some of those uh limitations would be at that weight in this? Yeah, game? when you watch
4: Dean at Georgia, he's uh, he's playing around 230, and that's an appropriate size for a linebacker playing at the college level. It's appropriate weight, I should say. Uh, and he's flying around, and he's physical, and he's hitting folks, and he can play. Uh, I have not too much concerns with nicobe dean's stopping power right his, his 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 uh mass and his size and his ability to come into contact right when i say nicobe dean's undersized i'm talking about uh height right he is five mm-hmm. eleven, and i'm talking about length right he has 31 and 7 inch arms in the mock draftable combine database that's fifth percentile for height and that's 34th percentile for arm length 25th percentile for wingspan uh if you look at a lot of these linebackers that have recently succeeded. Uh, especially in too high defenses. We're talking about guys who are highly impactful against the pass, and that's often because they have good length. Fred Warner, 6'3", Shaq Leonard, 6'2", Tremaine Edmonds, 6'4". I don't have the arm lengths in front of me, but these guys have some range to them. They have some reach, right? Uh, Really, when you go and you look at modern linebackers who are succeeding with more of N'Kobe's build, a little bit squattier, a little bit uh, uh, lacking in length, you're looking at like a Roquan Smith, who Roquan was almost 6'1", 240, right? But he was a little bit squattier, right? He's a little bit of a denser build. You're thinking of like a Demario Davis, right? When Demario Davis came out, or actually Demario Davis, excuse me, Levante David. Uh, Demario Davis has some good size to him, but Levante's a yeah. little bit squattier, foot 230. Uh, N'Kobe Dean's more in that mold, but it's harder to be an impactful player against the pass when you lack length and height. You just occupy less space in your zones, even if you're quick and even if you're smart. Uh, and so I think N'Kobe's going to be good, at handling blocks and winning you know talk about winning with um, in the trees right in the forest like among the big offensive linemen i think he's going to be okay but how much can he impact the passing game at his lower height and with his lower length like that's a huge question because guys like shaq leonard and darius uh shaq leonard and and fred warner obviously like incredible players they just have a larger margin for error because they can just fill more space in zone whereas nicobe margin for error gets thinner in in pass coverage because he just doesn't occupy as much space
3: yeah, that's a good point. And that's how he will be uh, judged. That's how most off-ball linebackers are judged uh, in the modern NFL. All right, mm-hmm. let me get to my intriguing player here, Ben. So I did have Dean, you know, in my list on my Google Doc, I had him number two. I don't know if I was necessarily going in order or not, but I've got your boy, Jordan Davis. I mean, the wide yeah. range of outcomes for Jordan Davis in 2023 could really swing the Eagle season one way or another. I mean, if he comes in and it's just like, wow, this guy has made the second year leap. He's the athletic freak we thought he was going to be. Look at that combination of size and athleticism. Javon Hargrave goes to the 49ers. Uh, Jordan Davis comes in and is just disruptive. That, you know, would get fans very excited. Like Dean, I can tell Eagles fans really want to get behind Jordan Davis and they want to see the flashes uh of Jordan Davis at the same time we're talking about a guy who had zero quarterback hits and zero sacks in his rookie season, uh, 107 opportunities to rush the passer. Uh, we're looking at a guy who was fine against the run, but certainly was not a dominant player. He had some flashes for sure before he got injured, but I don't think you would watch him and be like, okay, he stepped in right away and was a great run defender, uh, especially when their run defense improved uh, after he went down and they signed Linville Joseph. So, uh, Like I said, wide range of outcomes. I mean, last year, like normally, I think if a number 13 overall pick had the season Davis had last year, the fan base would be a little like kind of irked by it, but it was a great season. They didn't really need Jordan Davis to come in and be good right away. Now, this season could be different if the Eagles have some struggles, uh, if they're struggling to replace Javon Hargrave, if Jalen Carter doesn't come in and play well right away, then if it gets to week seven or eight and the guy still hasn't made an impact, then there's certainly going to be some uh, concern. So Ben, I'll lay out my, I think a good season for Jordan Davis. I actually, this is very against brand for me, I actually think it's okay if he's not a great pass rusher this season yes. and you're just like, that's going to take some time, but I need him to be like, this is a no doubt about it. Like dominant level run defender showing up every week, blowing up plays the guy you thought you were getting at the very least, uh, when you drafted him in the first round, how, how, what are your expectations? How do you view success for Jordan Davis in year two?
4: Yeah. So the thing I would say you started by talking about that year two leap, and defensive tackle is just not one of the positions where we see guys take big year two leaps. We typically see it come a little bit later in their career, right? Destro Lawrence didn't take a big step until year three into year four. Quinton Williams didn't take a big step until year three. Dron Payne wasn't until year five. Vita Vea's first Pro Bowl was in year four. Uh, it's a position where there's a there's a there's an on-ramp, right? Uh, it, you, you certainly can not have guys who like walk in and are really impactful early. And certainly when you draft Jordan Davis top 15, you're hoping for that, but like, Lawrence was top 20 pick. Vita was a top 15 pick. These guys can take a year or two to get off the ground. It's really hard to play defensive tackle in the league. It's a really loaded position. Jeffrey Simmons, uh, who obviously Simmons dealt with injury, but like year one was pretty quiet. Year two, he started to wake up a little bit. And then year three and year four, all pro teams, pro bowl appearances, right? So I, first thing I would say like, I'm not going to be smashing the panic button if Jordan Davis isn't an insanely dominant force in year two. I think we typically see defensive tackles take a little bit longer than that. With that said, I like what i saw from davis in year one i very easily see how he can build upon it in year two especially not having to play on the bum ankle as he did for the second half of the season and kind of yeah. falling out of the rotation during his absence uh, i think you saw stretches of extremely elite run defense and then you see him lose to leverage a little bit he probably should shed a few pounds to solve that problem and as the stretches of elite run defense become longer and the issues with leverage, pad level, getting off balance become less and less frequent, he's on the field more. And when he's on the field more, he's going to start putting together what he is going to be as a pass rusher at the NFL level. It's really hard to rush the passer from the nose, right? Like Dexter Lawrence is like the only guy this year who was like a legitimately impactful down-over-down pass rusher while playing nose tackle. It's something that I think you figure out after playing for a while and having a ton of reps. How are you going to push the pocket? How are you going to set up other defensive tackles? They're obviously, they have a defensive coordinator change. They're losing Javon Hargrave, like the unsteadiness is there that like if davis has five sacks on the season sick he's got 15 quarterback hits that's awesome i don't think that's outside of the realm of possibilities because he's an insane athlete but that's not my measuring stick for him yet my measuring stick for him is are you doing your job on 1st and 10 to put the defense in a position where they're they're facing a 3rd and 8 such that the real pass rushers, Hassan Reddick, Fletcher Cox, Milton Williams, Jalen Carter, Josh Sweat, like those guys can go eat. And then you'll figure out how to get your pass rush together when you figure out how to get your pass rush together. Win the downs, on, win, win the rundowns, win those early downs, win those double teams, make the defense go. And I thought he, he was doing that early in the season. It was There was hot and cold moments. There were good games and bad games. I thought he was doing that. And I think he can continue doing that, even if the numbers don't reflect the sort of like... High tier stats, stat sheet stuffing player, you might expect to pick in the, with a top 15 selection.
3: Yeah, in training camp, you want to. Uh, Like you mentioned, the weight, I think he's talked about that. They want him to cut a little bit of weight. You want that to be a positive Mm -hmm. storyline. You want coaches to be going out of their way to say, oh, the light bulb's gone on for Jordan Davis. And really, you want him to be healthy uh, in training camp. You don't want any of that progress that you're hoping for uh, to get derailed with a nagging injury or anything like that. So Jordan Davis and N'Kobe Dean, two very intriguing Eagles as we look ahead to training camp. Remember, you can catch this segment on FanDuel TV and listen to the Ringers Billy special on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome in to The Full Go, episode 254, I believe it is. Am I right, Chris? Am I right? Yeah, I think I'm right. Mm -hmm. Tony, I'm right. There it is. Yeah. Welcome in to episode 254 of The Full Go podcast brought to you by The Ringer and, of course, Spotify is the gang. My name is Jason Goff. Shout out to everybody out there peeping this on FanDuel TV. The local angle is where you are at. I'm sure you've already heard all the great things that New York and Philadelphia and, and, and everybody has to offer. And they're all talking about sports, right? We're all talking about the same things, you know, the games that make us emotional, make us, uh, you know, upset, happy, sad, whatever the case may be. But uh, every once in a while and throughout my career and every once in a while on this pod, we try to delve into some of the things behind the curtain, some of this more serious topics, but have fun with them as well. Now, last pod, we talked a lot about Zion Williamson. And, uh, I, I think I left that pod, you know, letting y'all know, I think that he now is getting ready to take the NBA by storm for various reasons. But, uh, in this situation, this hit a little bit closer to home. Um, last pod also, we talked about Tim Anderson and how his play has dipped precipitously in the last 365 calendar days. Now he's dealt with injury. He's dealt with a whole bunch of things, right? New managers, uh, the situation just, it it hasn't been the best. And for a guy who was not only deemed a face, one of the faces of baseball, but the growing black face of baseball, which, you know, is a question in the conversation that we have a lot Uh, around the sport of baseball, he was becoming that dude. And he did it with his own swag. He did it with his own flair, his own style. And he did it very quietly. Um, And Tim Anderson is a dude who does not let a lot of people in at all. So when he sat down with Bomani Jones not too long ago to talk about the Josh Donaldson situation and just... What has happened up until this point in his career and how the entire story had been made. A lot of people here in the city uh, were um, surprised because Tim does not let people in. And over this last year or so, there's been a lot of rumblings about other things that have been going on. And Tim Anderson went on the Pivot podcast, a podcast with Ryan Clark, uh, Channing Crowder. And, of course, Fred Taylor. Uh I have listened to a few episodes of those guys' work. I think they do a terrific job. I've seen a bunch of clips. Like, we're all the same kind of consumers, unfortunately, these days, where everybody's got a dope pod, and then you tune into it for the second or third time. Be like, why am I not listening to more of this? Because you see all the clips all the time, and you think that you've consumed everything that the conversation entails. But one of our producers on this pod, Tony Gill, threw into the group chat uh the... Interview, the entire interview. And he also threw the IG, uh, edited clips that the shade room and some other blog spots have picked up because Tim Anderson, not only being the face of black baseball has become one of those, you know, cultural figures in the community, uh, nationally. And it has been recognized over the last couple of years and without knowing a whole lot about him, you know, he's going about his business in a very business-like and professional way. He's talked about the game of baseball in ways that the gatekeepers don't like by saying, hey, he's bored a lot of the time. And, you know, he understands why people don't gravitate towards the game. And that's because it, it, that's why he thinks it's his responsibility to kind of spice this thing up. So when the stuff started to surface about not only Tim Anderson's marriage, but also his extramarital situation's and then the the birth of a child outside of his marriage. You know, I, I've been fortunate enough to be in this city now for uh, 20, 19 years, two years in Atlanta, 19 years here, uh covering a bunch of different athletes and knowing a bunch of stuff about a bunch of different athletes. And I've always tried to keep it as professional as possible. And. Keep dudes' personal stuff out of the game in terms of how I'm talking about them. Now, if your personal stuff starts to interfere with your play, there's certain ways you could talk around those things. But when an athlete comes out and addresses these things, first of all, it's very few and far between that it happens. And secondly, you don't really know why it's happening. Right. Are you trying to tamp something down? Are you trying to, uh, you know, curry favor? Did you just need to talk? And when I saw this interview and saw what Ryan Clark was approaching, because talking about Tim's journey, you can't just start with this last year, obviously. Um, some of the stuff that Tim Anderson touched on and. First of all, if y'all are expecting me to be gay or nay on someone having a child outside of their marriage or out uh, you know out out of wedlock, then that's not my that's not uh for me to judge to be honest with you uh obviously, it complicates situations for him for his new family because uh, that's what it is <laughs> when you have a child out of wedlock. You have to take care of things as if you have another family now. And also for his wife, Bria, and his two daughters. That situation is going to be as complicated and as sticky and as difficult as it's going to be without uh, me passing judgment on it. And this is the other part of it, too. To listen to that man's story, once again, because I've known some of these things about Tim Anderson uh, in terms of his father being in jail and him talking about his pop's and the, the, the conversations and bond that they didn't have because of the fact that he was in jail, right? He, he you know, he, he talks about his mom with reverence, but he was raised by his aunt and uncle. So imagine being a kid who at a very, very young age is now living with family members and, um, living what he, what he deemed, you know, a, a, an okay life, but not having contact with your dad at all, really, uh, outside of visits. And those being the pictures that you had, because he mentioned it in the interview that those are the pictures that he had. Uh, those are the pictures that he, you know, from his childhood, the pictures of him and his dad are usually with his dad being in prison. So, you know, the first thing that jumps off of me uh, for me when I saw and heard what Tim was talking about was this is an old school dude. Like Tim doesn't carry himself. He might be a new school dude when it comes to the dress and the you know the the fashion and all of but this is a very old school cat. And this is a very old school southern gentleman. You feel me? Like it, it there's um there is a there is a earnestness and a sincerity with which that he speaks when he doesn't say a whole lot of words. So when he does talk, you realize what you're getting and how he's trying to make it uh come across for you. The thing that I took away from this entire thing and hearing Tim and actually seeing Tim over this last year or so, I think Tim is in an incredibly lonely place. An incredibly lonely place. And he's put himself there. Right. (laughs) Like, let's not get it twisted. He's put himself in that position, but he's also not asking for anybody's tears. He's not asking for anybody's help. He's not asking for anybody's hugs and love. And I think that's also an issue as well, because I think what you're seeing from Tim Anderson is a dude who is isolated on so many different levels. Right. He talks about Major League Baseball clubhouses and what you can and can't be and what you're not used to. Now, just think. At 19 years old, you get two million dollars out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, never having any money before. He mentioned that he went and got an iPad and, and, and some clothes were his first big purchases, right? Because he already had a couple of cars as a 19-year-old. He got one from his dad, and he had already saved up money and bought his own. So, this, like, when you factor in all the things and the whys and the reasons, you know, I try to come at this sports thing from a humanistic side as much as I possibly can because I also, on a very, 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 very much smaller scale, you know, public L's are hard to take they are very hard to take and we watch these dudes and these ladies take public ales night in and night out and that's professionally but when you start bringing the personal stuff in there like this is a different animal that this dude has been dealing with and he has put himself, and I can't repeat it enough. He has put himself in this position, but to hear him talk about the, the relationship that he didn't have with his father and then to hear him talk about what he wants to be for his son that he had out of wedlock, his son, Seven Anderson. Um, all the mistakes that, that were made were right there in the nurturing portions of his life. So now we're watching a dude who we think, Hey, face a baseball, face a black baseball. You know, dude is gonna be a Silver Slugger for years to come. Led the league in batting two years ago. This dude is the talk of the South Side, and is bringing back a a a, um, a, a baseball kind of identity that has been long gone. Like we act like baseball didn't have swag before. Like. Y'all talking about? I remember Eric Davis and Daryl Strawberry and Barry Bonds. You feel me? I remember Ozzy Smith. You feel me? Like, I remember dudes like that. Like, I, like, we, we walking around here like it's all been, you know, trucker hats, fishing reels, and shotgun racks. That's not the case. So when we watch Tim Anderson, and I would implore you, actually, to go check out that that pod, The Pivot, even though it's not a ringer pod, right? Check out the the ringer folks first. But I would implore you all, if you're a White Sox fan, to go check out that podcast and learn a little bit more about this dude. And you don't have to agree or disagree with anything. But from the humanistic side, you know, we always see these struggles and we see numbers that take dips and we see numbers that soar. And we don't know why it's happening. You have bad days and good days at work. You have bad years, bad months, bad you know, careers, and then move on to a new job. I think there's so much going on with this dude right now that at last pod, before I heard all these things that he had to say, I said that maybe a change of scenery would probably be best for him you know, and I want him to be a white Sox for as long as he possibly can be, but to hear the situations and to hear all these things, it kind of puts it into a different perspective. Not only what has been happening to him, but a dude that hasn't let a lot of people in. So I hope he continues to let people in. I hope he continues to seek therapy and situates himself as best as he possibly can. Ryan Clark talked to him about mending trust and talking about love and all those good things that we hate talking about when it comes to being macho men in sports. But I'll tell you this, man, when you when you when you figure out what some of these backstories are and then you can trace the steps to where they actually end up, it makes it a lot easier. It makes it a lot more digestible, a lot more manageable, I think, as a fan. So you might not do any of that, but if you if you choose to do so, I think you'd be helping yourself out. Not only as a White Sox fan, but also as a human to figure out some of the pressures and stresses that these dudes are under and also put themselves through. So that's the local angle from the Chicago side of things. I hope you guys enjoyed. It. we do this thing every Sunday every Tuesday every Thursday right here on the full go podcast brought to you by the ringer and of course Spotify is the game